So if, you, you may wonder, you may not, but you may wonder how we plan to preach what we preach when we preach what we preach. And we, as church leaders, have been praying for some time knowing that we would be opening the book of Titus together. We thought it might even have been in the spring. Then we thought, well, maybe it's going to be in the summer. And so then we said, believe it or not, this is fall. I know you don't think it is yet, but this is school started back, so we're treating this like the beginning of fall. And so we come to this time that we are trying to open God's Word and set the scene for where we are as a church family. If you're new around here or if you've not been for a while, uh, this church has been in the process of restarting, it seems, for a long time. There was a, a season where we had to reach out as a church. I was not a part of it then to ask the First Baptist Church of Woodstock to come in and take over. And for a season, there was a mindset. We were a campus of Woodstock. And then right before the pandemic hit, we started the process of becoming a autonomous, self-governing church again. And at that time, as we started trying to get our legal documents in place and all that had to be required for us to be organized that way, we knew there'll come a time when we'll want to look at the book of Titus. And you may say, why? Because the book of Titus speaks of what it means to be a healthy church family. And this entire book really is speaking of church health, what it means to be a healthy church. Uh, there was a season in America where people weren't too worried about church health. They talked about church growth. But I'm of the opinion that if a church is healthy, it will grow because people will impact other people and you'll see spiritual growth and perhaps even uh, numerical growth even rapidly. And so as we look together at what it means to be a healthy church, in the book of Titus, I want to start off this morning by asking you a few questions. What is church to you? Is church something that you do? Is church somewhere that you go? We've made a very intentional effort. It may sound a little silly to you, but we don't call this the church. We call this the church house. We call this the church property because technically this building is not the church. We have taught children in the last generation, here's the church and here's the steeple and open it up and see all the people, a little nursery rhyme, and it's just bad theology, <laughs> okay? We crammed it in, in kids' brains and they remembered it. Some of you remembered it from being a child and being back there. You know, it's Good theology is here's a building and it may or may not have a steeple. That's not the point. If you want to see the church, you look at the people. This is the church. And when the little wiggly fingers called the church come together and they meet together, it's a church meeting wherever it takes place on whatever kind of property, wherever they're gathered. So that's cross culture to where we live today. Because people think that Church is something you go to, you attend, and you go to this church this Sunday, and you go to that church next Sunday, and you're just going to church. Well, you may be going to a worship service somewhere, but if we're really going to be the church, we have got to understand that the church is not something I do or somewhere I go. The church is who I am. 
The church is my covenant family. The church is who I'm accountable to and who is accountable for me. And that accountability goes through that covenant relationship. And that may seem a little strange to you. I know many times we've said, where does the Bible talk about church membership? Well, okay, maybe that phraseology is not used, but there's plenty in the scripture that we need one another. We submit to one another. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. We love one another. We carry one another's burdens. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep, and I can go on. That doesn't happen by casual attendance of a church here and a church there. That may sound like I'm being a little harsh, but I'm really trying to encourage you to understand a healthy church is not something you do. It really is who you are. And when we read the book of Titus, we see that a healthy church family has healthy church leaders. They don't say just do as I say. They say, let's do this together. Now, there's a real sense of, I don't know, weirdness <laughs> being, being put on me when I say I'm supposed to model this for you. But the scripture says, Paul said, you can follow me because I'm following Christ. And there's a sense in which church leaders have to have a weighty sense upon them that they're supposed to be modeling and patterning for the people, not a perfect life, but a direction in their life that people say, okay, we can go there together. So now our Bibles are open to the book of Titus. And we read here, it's on page 36 if you have this little journal. We read the qualifications of elders. That's it, what's at the little heading there. And it says, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So who are these elders? And why does what we're about to read after that, why does it matter to me? You know, part of preparing a sermon, a message, a Bible teaching is putting myself in your seat and saying, why does that matter to me? I mean, why do I care? What's going on in my life? Will this make any difference of how I see life and how I live life? So this morning, I, I want to just ask you straight up, why does it matter to you that there's a list of the qualifications of the elders? Why does it matter? I mean, you may be saying, I, I don't really plan on being a church leader. I'm not a church leader. Don't want to be. Like one guy said, I've seen the boss's job, and I don't want it. You know, but you may say, I've, I've seen what leaders go through. I don't want the glass house. I don't want people looking at me like that. That, that's not my calling. That'll never be who I am. So why does it matter to you? I want to offer you at least a couple of reasons. I think it matters because we want to see what the Bible says we should expect of our church leaders. And we want to see what the Bible says of what God expects for the maturing, growing believer. I remember the first time I taught the book of Titus in a, in a church setting. I was pastor of a church in Virginia, and I asked the question, so why, do I just kind of skip over these qualifications of an elder? Because most of the people there are never going to be an elder or a pastor, so they don't care. And then it hit me. Don't I think that everybody listening on a Sunday morning should want to be a mature follower of Christ? 
if this is a picture of a mature believer, then it should be something that you want in your life. You should want these things evidenced in you. And you know, I'm very aware when we read the scripture that God speaks to you in a personal way, and here's what I'm expecting today. I'm expecting as we look at these qualifications of an elder that God's going to speak to you about something in your life and say, you know, you need to bring that in line. Here's a place where you need to grow. Here's something you need to do. So would you join me in praying that prayer that God would talk to us like that? Let's pray together. Father, as we open this book with great reverence, we pray now that you would speak to us in very personal ways that you would speak to us about the expectations that we have for those who are leading and for the expectation and vision that we have for those who want to be mature followers of Christ. So, Father, take your word. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Titus 1.5 says, I left you in Crete. Remember, if you've missed the introduction, Paul is writing to Titus. He left him there. And he says he left him there to put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. So on this island of Crete, more than one gathering of a church, church planting taking place across the island, Paul says to Titus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go in, and in every church setting, I want you to appoint the elders, the, the leaders in the church, and that will help put things back in order. That's a, a medical term that means to set a bone straight. And so we want to set our life straight as we follow Christ. So this term, though, for elder, we looked at it last week, and I'm going I'm to repeat it every week in this little mini-series on church leaders. Every week I want you to see that there are three interchangeable terms in the Scripture. You find them interchangeable here. You find them in the book of Acts, chapter 20, and in 1 Peter, chapter 5. And so these interchangeable terms are elders, are the mature ones. They oversee the flock, they provide oversight, and they shepherd the flock. So it's appropriate, biblically, to say they are the mature ones who lead and feed. So now today, we, we start with the qualifications. They're listed, beginning in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, and then there's a list. I want to make sure you know we are thankful that in this little journal we also have 1 Timothy. Now, no, I don't expect you to be able to read that, all right? But I did want you to see, uh, this is my way of drawing you a picture, all right? I did want you to see that in 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, you see parallel listings they're not exactly the same. It, it's not cut and paste. But you see parallel listings of what's expected out of a church leader. And you're going to notice if you spend some time reading those, and I, I encourage you to, if you spend some time reading those, you're going to see that they both speak to the leader's reputation. They speak to the leader's relationships. They speak to the leader's character. They show that there are godly commitments and godly conduct and godly character and godly convictions. I want you to read broadly as you study the scripture. I want you to be Acts 
Berean Christians that it talked about. They went home and studied to see if what the preacher was saying was true. So I want you to investigate for yourself, learn for yourself, embrace for yourself what the Bible teaches. And I'll tell you what one professor told me. If you find something that no, one's el- no one else has ever discovered, you're probably wrong, okay? Because this is not new stuff, all right? But as you look and see what others have said, I love this breakdown. Godly commitments, godly conduct, godly character, and godly convictions. Though we're not going to follow that as an outline, I do think it is an outline, even as you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 6. And the first word that's given is, if anyone is above reproach. What does that mean? Can you guess? KK and I like to watch British TV. I think it just makes her feel better that she can pretend she doesn't speak like a southerner. I don't know what it is, but but we like to watch little British dramas. And uh, we have found that if we watch them and turn on the the text (laughs) it's not only easier to hear but sometimes you can figure out what the word was when they pronounce their English a different way but I can almost promise you somewhere in the hour of the show that we might be watching we're going to hit pause and take our phone and ask I'm not going to call his or her name at the moment because I don't want my phone activated but we ask our phone what does this mean (laughs) because it's like a a British word that we don't use in everyday conversation probably you don't walk around saying hmm that guy's really above reproach you know and these are modern translations what does it mean well it means that he's not accused in such a way that it sticks It really speaks to the reputation, that he has a good reputation. And you'll see if you read both of these passages, both inside the church and outside the church. Now, as I was thinking about this, because he repeats it again in Titus, if anyone's above reproach, and then he says he must be above reproach. And so as I was thinking about the overseer being above reproach, it triggered in my mind, something that happened when I was pastoring in Northern Virginia. I was pastoring in the D.C. suburbs, and we were starting a church. As a matter of fact, the the church worship center looked a lot like this. The only difference was the back opened up and made classrooms or overflow space. But it was a very similar setting inside the church. And we, we would come to the church house and we would watch God bring in new people that were military background and FBI background you know we had an FBI guy who was the chairman of the personnel committee (laughs) think about that all right so I mean when you when you start looking at all those kind of relationships I'd been there about a year and I'll never forget the day someone knocked on the door and I opened the door and he reached in his pocket and he took out a badge and I thought where's this going all right And he said, "Uh, are you Pastor Gilbert? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, we're doing a background check on one of your members, and I wonder if you have a couple minutes to talk with me. I said, well, sure. So we walked over, and we sat down, and he called the guy's name. He says uh, he's being screened for a top-secret security clearance. 
and we're doing a full investigation on all of his friends, his relatives, uh, who lives next door, and we're trying to figure out if he really deserves a top secret security clearance. So I want to ask you some questions about him. And I thought, that's never happened before. But it happened again. I would say maybe as many as a dozen times I spoke with investigating officers for people who were moving through the security clearance at the Pentagon or the FBI, one of those places. I thought about that when I read this above reproach. Because I've actually heard of churches that when they get ready to set aside leaders in the church, they ask those leaders if they'd be willing to let them call somebody or visit where they work. <laughs> Think about that. One day, someone shows up at your work and says, we're doing a little check on so-and-so. We wonder, can you tell it? Do people around here trust him? I mean, uh, what kind of worker is he? Uh, what, what's his attitude and what's his, what's his character reference? You say, that seems a little over the top. I'm just trying to get you to think for a minute about the scripture. What does it mean that a person has a good reputation? What about you? What do they say about you where you work? What did, do, they, do they see any of your relationship with Christ on display? Are they watching any type of maturity coming forth in your life? We're saying that we're listening to this because it matters for our church leaders and it matters for those who want to be mature followers of Christ. So the overseer as God's steward, I, I, I want to try to explain every word and we don't have time to unpack it all, but this word steward, you probably not another word you don't use in a daily thing, but it means the one who is like managing on behalf of another. Literally, it's the keeper of the house. It's someone who is watching over the household while the owner has gone away. And leaders in the church are considered to be stewards because they don't own the church. I mean, there's a good way for you to use the personal program in my church. But there's a bad way for me as pastor to use the personal pronoun, my church. It's not my church. It's God's church. It's our church, but it's God's church. And we'll get to that again in Acts chapter 20. But right now we're saying the overseer, God's steward, must be above reproach. He must have a good reputation. Now listen, this doesn't mean that he is perfect. It's not about his perfection. It's about his direction. He is careful. He is willing to look carefully at how he lives. And so then Titus goes on to say if he's above reproach, if he's the husband of one wife and his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. What's he talking about here? He's saying that the one who is a leader in the church, remember we're applying this to the term elder, the term overseer, and the term pastor. The leader in the church with a good reputation, what should we look at? Well, first we look at his godly commitments in his relationships. Pastor can't ignore his home. Well, he can, but he's not supposed to ignore his home and then come and try to lead the church family. The first place we look is to see how's he treating his family so we'll know how he's going to treat this family. Now, the, the really interesting word here, the husband of one wife. 
Some say, well, that's talking about polygamy because it was in a day when they could be married to more than one. Could be. I could see how that would be pretty confusing if pastor had, you know, a couple of wives running around the church family, you know. Does it speak to divorce and remarriage? It could. Some would apply it that way. Some would go into the, the breakdown of different causes of divorce and how divorce and remarriage. Does it speak to if his wife died and now he's got a second wife, but does that mean he's disqualified? Does it, does it speak to if he's single? And if he's single and he doesn't have a wife, he can't be an elder. Well, I, I think you can read the whole of Scripture and you can find answers for those questions. But here's one thing that you may have never thought about that I'm convinced is built into this word. He is a one-woman man. You may even find a modern translation that will say it that way. I'm, I'm not avoiding, just in this particular message, <laughs> I'm not avoiding addressing all those other questions I raised. What, what instead I'm trying to do is make sure you own this part and I could stop for a minute and speak to the women in the room. Women, I'm sure you could easily say, I'm uncomfortable around that guy. There's just something about him. He's a flirt. He goes too far. He says things he shouldn't say. You know, I'm, I'm an old guy, and I've got grown daughters, and I don't mind uh, hugging a girl and kissing her on the head, but I sure am careful about that now, you know. I'm not going to make any smart alex about governors or anything you've seen in the, in the news, okay? I, I'm just going to try to say to you, people can tell. Can't you, ladies? You can tell. If, if a guy is treating you with respect and honor and he knows the line and he's not crossing it don't ever lower that standard for a church leader and don't ever lower that standard in your own life a one woman man a one man woman that's what mature Christians long for and aim for shall I go on uh, you're just kind of looking at me uh, if you want to do your head like this I'll know you got the point alright and we understand that the family relationships he's not ignoring his children his children aren't perfect oh my what we do to pastors children I remember the first time we went to a sec another church in Virginia and a lady came to us laughing she said my, my son came home and said that your son was in his Sunday school class. And he said, Mommy, he's, he's just normal. And she said, I realized that his pastor had been a retired guy who had no children in the church. He had no idea what a pastor's child was supposed to look like. And she said to him, well, Jerry, did you expect him to be wearing wings and have a little halo on his head? I mean, come on. I mean, we have some pretty weird expectations for pastor's children. But I want to say to you, we know that they are not going to be perfect. But we also know that the leader, and remember, 
the mature follower of Christ, we care about our children and we guide our children because we don't think we can do church and ignore family. Just doesn't work that way. He has godly commitments. That's the first part. He has godly conduct. Let's look at this, this list. An overseer's God steward must be above reproach. And then there are five things listed. I, I just counted them out and tried to see if it was five on both counts and it's five on one, six on the other. <laughs> all right, so, but anyway, I want to show it to you, all right? It says that he must not be arrogant. So what, what does that mean? He's not dismissive. Even when he's right, he doesn't always try to intimidate you, making you think he's right. He's humble in the way he approaches relationships. And he's willing to enter into conversation. And you're, you're not afraid to talk to him. You know, one of the, the best things that I ever received pastoring churches is when a little girl comes up to me after it's over and gives me the little picture she drew of, of me preaching. It was always fun to watch them try to put little fuzzy balls on the side of my head when I, you know, ball head and, 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 uh, and draw, uh, put a microphone on and all this. But, you know, one of the best things that I think you can ever say about a public speaker is that children understood him because it was real. It, it was down where we live. And if, if a pseudo-intellectual leader wants to try to impress you and always intimidate you because he's arrogant, that's not the quality of a leader, nor is it a quality of a mature believer. He's not quick-tempered. Now, I understand that there are some temperaments and personalities that have to work on different parts of this. I, I typically don't get angry and I don't get really mad but I've noticed in the last few years I need to eat sometimes you know and and hangry becomes a problem all right and I'll say to KK honey can we just wait just a minute I, I gotta eat something I, I can tell my body's affecting my mouth all right and and I know what's about to come out of me so think about it he is not arrogant he's not quick-tempered he's not a drunkard we could, we could do a whole message on what does the Bible say about alcohol. The, I'm convinced that the Bible does not teach total abstinence. But I can say emphatically that the Bible does teach that drunkenness is a sin. And I can also say the Bible teaches that there are some believers who struggle and leaders and mature Christians know how to lay down their rights sometimes for the good of others. And there's no way you can let a pastor be controlled by alcohol. And really, there's no way that you can claim to be a mature believer and be controlled. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He's not quick to fight. I believe some translations say striker. <laughs> he's, not, he's not quick to punch, all right? And he's not greedy for gain. Oh, we could talk a lot about this. But we know that there are some pastors who... You don't know if you want to trust them with the money. You, you don't know what they do with the money. They always seems to be about money. If a person is a bivocational pastor or a congregational elder, how do people think of his reputation when it comes to money in the workplace? All those things matter. So that's a list of five 
he must not. Here's a list of six he must. He must be hospitable. There's a lost art of hospitality. Sometimes we struggle having people in our home for whatever reason. We don't want to clean up. Uh, we don't want to compare. I can't think about that without thinking the first time we just graduated from seminary. <clears throat> we were invited to join a little supper club in the church, you know, and there were going to be four couples. We were going to take turns going once a month to every, everyone's home. And the first house we went to was an architect. And when we pulled in, we went through the gate the little fountain out front, this massive architectural structure. We go in, and the table is set to perfection. And, you know, one of those times you didn't know which fork to use. You know, I mean, it was just, everything was just laid out so perfectly to eat. And then we got back in the car, and I said to KK, that was so much fun. I enjoyed getting to know those people. She said, not me. They're coming to our house. I said, what? She said, Honey, we don't even have a table and chairs that match. I mean, I, I'm still using my, Grandma's old Corel ware. You know, I mean, I mean, they're coming to our place to eat. Well, that may be part of what you struggle with. But people know if you enjoy having people in your life, and there's something to maturing believers who know how to be hospitable in the way they relate to others. I could go on, but the sixth of them, you don't want me to. <laughs> All right, the second one, he, he's a lover of good. He, he focuses on what is right. He's not always bad-mouthing things, and he's not always negative. He's looking for the good in everything, if possible. He is self-controlled. Now, now, this word... Uh, is translated different ways in different translations. He is discreet. Uh, it's going to be a word that shows up a lot of times in Titus. It's a word sober-minded, many translations say. And literally, it means he thinks like he's saved. I love that. It comes through the filter of the scripture and the gospel. He is self-controlled. He is upright. He's looking for things to be done correctly. He wants things to be just. He longs for justice. He doesn't tolerate injustice. It breaks his heart. He is holy. He is set apart like others who follow Christ. And he is disciplined or self-controlled. Here, the last one in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Now remember, though, I keep talking about him, but I'm talking about you because we all long to be mature followers of Christ but we're expecting this from the leader. And then this section ends and says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. There are at least three things said here about the scripture. First, he holds firm to the trustworthy word taught. I'd like to come back to that. It next says he, he wants to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Do you know the difference between church leaders articulated in Scripture? Those who are elders must be able to teach. 
those who are overseers and pastors must be able to teach. doesn't mean they've got the gift of public speaking and some people don't want them to lead the Sunday morning service. But they do know how to sit down with the Bible open and tell you what they believe and why they believe it and either disciple or lead a class to know how to represent that. That's the difference between a pastor, elder, overseer. He's able to. He is apt to teach. He's capable of presenting it from the Scripture. Here it says he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, healthy teaching, and rebuke those who contradict it. Two-sided coin. We're going to see it throughout the book. He can teach you the right way, but he can also point when you're out of bounds. Yesterday, we were driving back from North Carolina. I think I told you that KK wants to be in North Carolina for every grandkid's birthday. Only problem is the 12 of them, all right? Uh, two of them live in Boise, so we, we, we don't have to go to Boise, Idaho. She wants to be up there. And so we went, and we were driving back yesterday. And I said, okay, honey, we're driving back. It's getting late on Saturday afternoon. It's time for me to start thinking about my sermon. You ready to help me? And so we were reading through this text. And I told her, when I think about Shaliford and I think about rebuking those who contradict, I think about the day a guy came. I talked to him before the service. He, as he spoke, he had what I would consider to be a Pentecostal theology that said you have to speak in tongues and you have to be baptized after you're saved and give evidence by speaking in tongues or you're probably not saved. That's what, that's what I mean by Pentecostal theology. And I, I picked it up as he talked and we talked for a minute and, uh, and I watched him. Real outgoing personality. Boy, he was meeting everybody in the church and when it was over, I kind of circled around and I, as everyone left, I sat down and started talking to him. He started explaining to me what I didn't know about the Bible and explaining to me what I didn't know about being baptized in the Spirit and speaking in tongues and all those things. And I said, well, brother, I, I, I think I've studied those things before and I, I disagree with where you're going. And he said, oh, we can meet this week and talk. I said, we don't need to meet. We really don't need to talk about this. It's obvious you've come to that conclusion. But I want to speak to you as lovingly and as straight as I can. You're not welcome here. Because I sense you're going to cause confusion in our body. And if that's going to be the thing you always talk about, and it's your lead story, and it's the only way you know how to deal with Scripture, you need to go find somewhere that believes that. That's not accepted here. And you're not welcome here. Now, some of you are looking at me thinking, gee, pastor, that's so harsh. Do you know why I took that stand? First, because he's wrong. <laughs> but second, because I love you. And I don't want you to be led by someone who's going to confuse you and add to and misrepresent the scripture 
still trying to figure out how you're processing that. <laughs> it's not in my notes to tell you that. But I, I brought it up to KK yesterday on the ride home when we came to this point. So I want to say to you, a growing, mature Christian knows what's right and sound and healthy, and he knows the proper way to disagree. You know, there are times that you just don't need to bother disagreeing with somebody at work because, I mean, you're not going to change your mind. I get that. Be discreet. Don't, don't be the one who's always picking arguments. But there is a time in a setting that you have to say, that's just wrong, and I don't believe that. So how does that apply to you today? How do we bring this to a close? I want to challenge you with four things as we end. First, is there anything you need to set straight? Remember we, we said that he left in there so he could put things in order. Anything in your life out of order that you need to bring back in line, that's part of what happens when we worship. When we worship, God speaks to us and we respond to him. Ooh, God, you're right. Aren't you glad God doesn't give you a list of everything that's wrong and you've got to work on it the rest of your life? <laughs> He's just such a tender father and knows how to guide you, when to talk to you about it, when to bring you along. But when he brings it up, you need to say, okay, I want to make that right. Second, are you willing to welcome God's direction from his word? Are you willing today to say as an act of your worship, I want to be on the path of being a mature believer. Makes no room in scripture for those who get saved and live any way they want to and hope when they die they go to heaven. Just not in the Bible. In the Bible, those who know Christ, love Christ, want to follow Christ, want to grow in Christ, and yes, look forward to seeing him one day in heaven, but want to live as his representative here and now. Were you willing to pray for your church leaders? These who have to face these, not just as a challenge for mature believers, but saying this is how we're supposed to live and lead the church. Are you willing to pray for your church leaders? And last, are you willing to cling to the gospel? Remember a moment ago I told you I was going to come back to this phrase. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. What is the trustworthy word? Paul, what are you talking about? Titus didn't have to ask. He knew. The trustworthy word is this. We don't get to know God on our terms. He doesn't ask us to work and pay for our sin. We get to know God because he came after us, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for our wrong and was raised from the dead to give us new life. Here's the trustworthy word. We all need a Savior and there is one. His name is Jesus. He paid for us. He longs for us. And the gospel is the only thing that changes us. Cling to it. Hold firm to it. That's what leaders are supposed to do, and that's what I'm challenging you to do today. Cling to the trustworthy word.
that you can be forgiven in Jesus. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it passes generations. It passes context in cultures. It's still good and right for today, and it's still the tool the Spirit of God works to speak to us. So today, we welcome your word into our lives. And Lord, today, we pray for anything we need to set straight, any area where we need to grow. We pray for those set aside to lead us as a church family. And we always cling to the trustworthy message that Jesus is our Savior. Thank you, Lord. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, your own Son. And it's in his name we pray.